tonight in the Marshall Pruitt podcast. We're going to do your part two, the Week in IndyCar listener Q&A, getting started here at 8.32 p.m. on a Thursday. Been a busy day, a good day. Got the final little gift packs out for all of you who kindly donated to the Racing for Cancer charity efforts that we put forth over the Indy 500. Spent about an hour at the post office there. Wow. Microcosm of fun. While I was out, while my wife and I were out, she's doing a lot of physical therapy and making some huge, huge breakthroughs there. Uh, Got to read Happy Note that Stingray Rob won today's Indy Pro 2000 race at Indianapolis Motor Speedway Road Course. Was also... Very happy to see Ruben's Barrichello son, Eduardo, nicknamed Doodoo. That Doodoo won his first USF 2000 race. So happy for them. Texted Ruben's after the race. Just congratulated him. Said he was so happy, as you'd have to expect. Downside, though, reigning USF 2000 champion Braden Eaves of the exclusive Autosport team. Boy, bad crash. Sent to the hospital, confirmed that he is staying overnight and going to try and pick up on this a little bit more on Friday. I know that the rest of his season, we just have to hope he'll be able to do the rest of the season. I know the car took a beating. Finances, even at that young, early level on the road to Indy, money is certainly not easy to come by. So big, highly, highly damaging crash to the vehicle can certainly derail a season you add in any injuries as well yeah just hoping hoping for the best with young Braden eaves that kid has crazy amount of talent good thing i know most of you don't know him you hopefully you will in the years to come his team owner michael duncalf very good guy just very good guy right approach to things Uh, A lot of humanity within Michael. So, yeah, Uh, there are some folks where you have a bad crash and team owner, their character gets put to the test. Sometimes it fails. I don't think that's going to be the case here. So going to look forward to learning more about how young Braden is doing and how quickly he might be able to get back into a car. Other than that, a couple things going on in the background. Spoke with our man Juan Monterrier. Juan Montoya, I think yesterday, and yeah, just try and get a little bit of lay of the land of what he's wanting to do once his IMSA season is over. Acura Team Penske shuts down. What do you do? Actually rang him about two weeks ago to ask that question. He was in Europe and said, hey, I'll call you right back. And, well, if you know our man, Mr. Monterrier, that's usually a, yeah, don't exactly sit by your phone. Uh, he's someone who... Memory-wise, yeah, I didn't expect him to remember. So good to catch up with Juan. Definitely wants to keep going. Know of two IndyCar teams he has spoken with uh, about going forward into 2021. Who knows if that will happen? But yeah, hoping that something positive will happen for a man. Montoya, love having that guy in any paddock I'm in. He is so much fun and then just ridiculously talented Heard some other sponsor things going on. Going to hold on to that. Not going to get into that now. But, uh, yeah, that's some work that I'm doing here in the background. 
trying to figure out a couple things that I've heard from some very good sources that don't make me super happy to hear, but I'm going to chase them down and we'll see what I have to report on racer.com in the coming days or weeks. Final note before we get rolling with part two of your Q and a checked in with IndyCar checked in with the promoter for mid Ohio and nothing coming back yet from the highest office in the mighty state of Ohio by the end of business on Thursday. I know tomorrow, Friday, which is probably when you might be listening to this, uh, I know that's a go-no-go date for a lot of people. Not just series. I think the the series is planning to go. You're going to have to tell them not to. So they're acting and preparing like they're going to mid-Ohio for the weekend of September 11th through 13th. But there's a lot of other folks, whether it's vendors, support stuff, you name it, who have to decide whether they're sending a truck and people and all kinds of things might not be from anywhere near mid-Ohio. So, yeah, I can't criticize IndyCar because this isn't on them. Can't criticize the promoters. This isn't on them. The power and authority to hold a race with fans, which is the thing that would allow mid-Ohio to break even, right? They're not in the business of losing money. They are a business. They put on four IndyCar races a year. Two have been canceled. This mid-Ohio is the third that we hope will happen, and the fourth is St. Petersburg. Portland and Toronto have been called off. So just bear in mind, for those who might be frustrated, totally understand that frustration. This rests solely with the governor's office and the governor himself, Mr. DeWine. So, yeah. Have also heard the willingness for others, the IndyCar series in particular, to pay for the event to be held if no fans or insufficient number of fans are approved. Uh, I've heard that there's limited interest there as well. So really, truly on the clock for a lot of people who have looked towards vacation time, whatever it might be, to go to Mid Ohio. And yeah, we're heading into Friday, uh, one week out, and we still don't know how absolutely crazy so hey it's a music bed hey we're we're rocking and rolling a little bit here uh we're gonna kick things off with james buffet how you doing james hope you and your wife are well hope the family is well says how do we go about getting you pruitt in the booth with uh lee diffie and townsend bell instead of paul tracy says i used to like the guy but he needs to go away Seems like everything he says now is going to be cringeworthy. Well, I already commented on the stuff about Danica and her shoes, and that was, yeah, not great. Um, so, <laughs> they have my number. They don't use it. It tells me everything I need to know. I don't know if I would be good in the booth with them. Uh, I know I would with Lee, just because he and I, you know, old friends, old colleagues, etc. And of the times that I do get to do TV stuff, mostly in the past, uh, certainly not this year, but could be Indie Lights. I know last year I spent a couple hours doing, what, NBC Gold during the 500, I think, with, anyways, a couple people. It was a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, being a yappy, flappy mouth guy, it's, yeah, hey, I got a podcast. I do that. And uh, this is my unpolished turd. They probably want a little more polish, but 
you know, I'd like to think I'm versatile enough to be able to polish and do that with them. But, you know, um, Paul, I would say he offers pretty good commentary, right? The, the content, it's not always great. This is coming from a guy whose content talking into microphones here is not always great. So it's not really criticism. I, eh, I think Paul is someone who has plenty of fans who've been his fan for quite a while, and they would be very upset if he wasn't in the booth. So I don't cringe when I hear Paul. Um, I, yeah, how's this? As I mentioned with Hinch, Mr. Hinchcliffe, our guest this week, he's really brought something that, boy, you want to talk about high-level, high-quality, and if we're talking relevance, cutting edge. It's been, what, three, four years since Townsend's driven an Indy car, right? Uh, I don't believe he's driven with the new Aero Kit. Certainly know he hasn't driven with the Aero Screen. Paul, it's been, what, 10 years now almost? So having a guy who was just in one of these <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, being able to offer commentary and whatnot, that is amazing. So appreciate the nod about getting me in the booth. Uh, I'd love it and enjoy it, and I think I'd do well, but, you know, they've got plenty of talent to draw from. The Hinch side, we want him in a car because that's where he is happiest. Quality-wise, though, if we look at the ratings, I don't know if just doing the same old thing year in, year out is going to get it to where it needs to be, so, you know, Diffie, our man Lee, that guy is as solid as a rock. So uh, I wouldn't want any changes there. Townsend, depending on, you know, the fun part. This is maybe the thing I've missed a little bit, James, is we used to have this fun back and forth between Townsend and Paul. And name the variety of broadcast teams in racing that we've loved over the years that have been together, whether it is Bob Varsha and David Hobbs going back and forth or, 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 or name plenty of scenarios there. Um, I don't know what it is or why, but the kind of volley, the, the tennis match back and forth between Townie and PT that used to make things so fun and offer insight as well I don't know what's happened there exactly. I don't know if it's a COVID thing or what, but uh, I haven't felt that magic for a little bit. They can do it. It is there. It is possible. Just haven't felt that thing for a little bit. And then when you throw in Hinch, who's so good, just <laughs> so good, it just highlights that, you know, maybe uh, some additions, maybe some shuffling. I don't know what the answer is, but if we're talking about IndyCar getting to a wider audience, James, seeing more people, having folks want to tune in, um, just want to see some of that chemistry and magic reignite between Townie and PT to improve those odds, get Hinch in the booth maybe, uh, move some people around. I mean, I don't really care about tenure. I'm just thinking about quality that drives bigger ratings, and I'm not 
I am partially stupid enough, not totally stupid enough to think, ah, well, the key to ratings is who's in the booth. No. <laughs> if that was the case, then, yeah, uh, we would have many series with just either plummeting fortunes or rising fortunes because there are some that are experiencing really solid ratings and viewership and their booth is hot garbage and there are others who have great booths and nobody is watching at all so it's not a booth thing but i would definitely say you can't hurt your odds if you incorporate someone like a hinch into things a little more centrally so there you go uh but yeah uh i appreciate it james there's no way on the planet earth they're ever going to have me replace pt uh, let's go to Tony chef 20. What are your thoughts on two races, two weekends in a row ending under yellow? I see both sides of the argument wanting the race to be a set distance and no more or less, but I also see fans feeling robbed of a great finish. Hashtag me personally. It doesn't happen enough to warrant any change, but I just hope IndyCar doesn't get the reputation of disappointing fans. Just want to know what you think. I hear you. I've already weighed in a bit. Tony on the Indy 500, uh, said that, a red to look after, a red flag to look after. Spencer Piggott is the first thing that came to mind if there was a possibility of getting things back together and finishing the race under green. Would have loved to have seen it. Had to be within reason. I mean, I think everyone would have waited a while, but if we're talking a super long time, knowing that we got TV windows and all kinds of other things, a lot of conspiring factors that didn't quite pan out. So I get the Indy 500 part. The Worldwide Technology Raceway, Takuma Sato brushing the wall, clanking the wall a little bit, and immediately going yellow. I don't have enough insight to know what took place there in terms of the reasoning behind the instant yellow to offer any real insight as to the decision side, did they, through a corner worker reporting it in or a video feed they might have seen, capture Takuma hitting the wall and something coming off his car? Ah, there's a crash, plus there's debris coming down onto the track. Someone could run over that easily, puncture a tire, big crash, go in yellow, everybody slow down, calm, calm, calm. I don't know. I know I've watched enough NASCAR to where it felt a little NASCAR-ish. Oh, contact, instant yellow. No matter what, just anyone making any kind of contact, seemingly there's an instant yellow. Even if the car, yeah, a little scraped up, but fine. Um, we're, so we're stopping. We're, we're going to throw the yellow. Everybody back it off, get behind the pace car. I'll admit that it felt a little bit like that. I'm not saying that's what it was, but it did have that, like, oh, well, he did get up into the wall a little bit, but it certainly wasn't bad enough for him to have to stop, and he's actually keeping up a pretty good pace now. If we were to go back to green, I think he would have needed to maintain that slower pace or pit for repairs, but, um, yeah, this is just a year, man. This is just the year where everything kind of sort of sucks, is half-assed, is overly cautious, is whatever, whatever. I don't know. 
there there's a part of me tony that wants to say yeah really i'm not sure i saw the need for that but again it's really easy to do the uh monday morning quarterbacking it's also something where i don't know if and what they saw that led them to believe it needed to go yellow right away and we ended up losing the end of the race so yeah to your point two of those within a span of two weekends yeah that wasn't great but you know uh, it's not the end of the world i i i hope it's not the end of the world because if so that'd be a sucky way for the world a reason for the world to end should i mention i believe by the way we're on the topic of officiating next week's guest for the week in indycar should be ari Lyondike. he called me what did he, he called me tuesday yeah uh, and said that Renus's dad listened to the podcast and was all kinds of mad at me for what I said about his kid. Um, and then also said he, I won't get into all of it, I'll let him explain it if he wants to, but uh, was commenting on some of what Colton said about him over the radio. Uh, also said he thought he didn't drastically disagree with what I said, but thought that I went too far later in the show by mentioning... Uh, the dire consequences of drivers not taking care of one another on an oval and that death was a possibility. He thought that was a step way too far. And after I said, no, it isn't, uh, and we talked it out a little bit, uh, I think he understood where I was coming from of, hey, we love you, kid. You're super fast. You're going to be around for a while. You're going to do big things, but not if you don't treat us with respect on ovals because that's when bad things can really happen. So um, hopefully he's going to be on the show next week as our guest said he wants to be said, I'd love to have him. And so hopefully nothing changes there. He wanted to speak a little bit. Uh, I know for sure he felt hashtag me personally attacked by Colton and questioning his character and such. And I think also wanted to explain some of the, uh, non-penalty stuff with Renus, plus answer your questions as well. So anyways, I love Ari. I love the fact that whether he loves something or doesn't love something or disagrees or whatever, he's going to pick up the phone, or if he sees me in the paddock, he'll come and grab me. And positive or negative, make sure that uh, the relationship is straight. Got to respect a guy like that, because I, I hate to tell you, there aren't enough like him. There's lots of folks who just get real grumpy and don't want to talk to you anymore. And you go, okay, well, uh, that worked in third grade. But uh, anyways, let's go to Harrison Moheski. Harrison, is this your first time sending in a question? If it is, I think it might be. Thank you. And if it's not, I apologize because I've forgotten. Nonetheless, I always love when we have what I think might be new questionnaires says, this was my fourth year in a row going to the Gateway race. Do you see this becoming a staple on the, on the IndyCar calendar? says, as a native St. Louisan, Louisian, not Louise, Louis, Louisan, Louisan. This is my unpolished turd show, y'all. Come on. Uh, as a native of St. Louis, I'd love to see IndyCar thrive in my hometown. It's already such a good sports city with the Blues and the Cardinals being successful. Hopefully, the track stays on long term. I really do, Harrison. I really do. 
I'm going to give the credit as always to Chris Blair, give, uh, just all the really awesome folks that whether it's the communication side with John, whether it's the ownership side with Chris, whether it is the sponsor and promotion side with John Bomarito. I mean, right. This is being done properly and they have done it properly every year. So I know that teams really enjoy going and doing this event, the fan interaction, just the love that is, is given talking with folks, interacting with folks. It's real. It's something that without bagging on some of the other tracks, boy, there are a number of IndyCar circuits where those who show up are very passionate and awesome and amazing but there aren't enough folks and yeah, there's just a lot of effort put into this race. There really and truly is. And you throw in something like the vintage indie registry there where you get some cool old vintage indie cars to watch. We had some road to Indy going on there. Indy pro 2000 in particular was all kinds of awesome. So seriously, Harrison, they do it right. And as long as this makes sense to IndyCar and the track, I can't imagine this stopping because there's nothing I can think of uh, to prevent this from being a long, long-term positive relationship. Uh, let's go to our man, Justin Brockwell. Hey, Justin, been a little while. Does IndyCar keep showing up at these single-lane short ovals without anything that can allow for passing? But we saw... Uh, we saw what happened to Phoenix after multiple poor races on track. I don't want to see Gateway fail or have Richmond doomed from the start. Either tires need to wear, cars need to go on a downforce diet, or we need to coach drivers on running elsewhere, somewhere than the bottom of these tracks. Pick one or more. And he also has a hashtag, Dalton Kellett sucks. Well, you might need in your next question submission, Justin, to fill in the last part. Uh, clearly the guy's either done something. I don't know what, but if you're going to throw in a close to the question of hashtag Dalton Kellett sucks, you know, just give me a little more than that, my man. So at least we understand where you're coming from. Uh, yes. Thousand percent agree. I am so tired of talking about COVID Corolla virus 2020 being an aberration of everything we expect but that's where I got to come back to here. Uh, assuming we can get back and have nice things and things return to normal ish next year, Justin, I would put pretty good money on IndyCar booking a test at Gateway with multiple cars and going and trying and playing and just seeing what they can come up with. Because to your point, and even to Harrison's question, hey, this is a seems like a really good thing, a lot of effort's put in. Yes, it's an amazing thing that needs to be preserved. The one thing that will derail it is boring racing. So, yeah, this, to your exact point, Justin, I think I mentioned this in my article on Monday, uh... Those Firestone tires sure didn't wear. And how do, you, how do you get mad at a tire company for doing a good job? Uh, but they're 
this is something where if they can come up with something that wears faster, that's great. Uh, more downforce is something that was called for by Hinch, thinking that that would allow more venturing out of a single lane and giving the cars enough downforce to try different lines. These are all things that, idea-wise, would be phenomenal for IndyCar to go and spend, I don't want to just say a day. I don't, you know, is it a day? Is it two? Who knows? It's a wickedly important event. It is one of the most, I guess, appreciated on the calendar. So, hey, we're going to go stupid low downforce. And can you hold on to it? Can you, does this chew up the tires? What does this do? Does this allow you even to even think about doing a second lane? Wouldn't necessarily expect so, but hey, we're going to give it a shot. And then we're going to send out three, four cars to try crazy high down force. And hey, maybe Firestone has some options that could do this, that, or the other differently. Again, go play, go try, come up with something. Because if this year's race is the model, especially the second race, the Sunday race, if that's the model for what we can expect next year, oh, that would be a worrying trend. Uh, Adam Jensen, we're sticking with the tire wear topic. Will Firestone consider testing a new compound for Gateway? For years, across three air configurations, there's been basically no difference in pace between old and new tires of the track. What's the solution to the slowest car dictating the field's pace? Yeah. Uh, We also know that the aero disturbance, the new aero disturbance caused by the aero screen has certainly made easier passes a bit more troubled adam so yeah just gonna repeat once again this is a crazy year where testing got shut off after february and 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 i'll talk to jay fry here soon and ask about some of these things to hopefully get some more formal thoughts on it but I just have to believe that the things we're looking at saying, eh, this isn't really as good as we had hoped. I can find a number of things that tie them directly to the many caveats we're having to deal with this year because of this pandemic. So remove the pandemic, and I think IndyCar goes and gets smarter and makes things better with their tire partner, with uh, whatever aero expertise they need to bring in, uh, if they need to, if not just rely on who they have in their department, who knows? But if we're talking about quality of the product, that has to be the thing that Roger Penske is impressing upon everyone. As soon as we're able, let's go work on shoring up any of the deficiencies we showed in 2020. Let me take a little sip of something here to uh, make my voice happy. Thomas Ayrton says, do we need to fear Pato Award being swept away by F1? Kid is showing amazing things and continues to impress. I listened to his radio most of the second race and his composure and maturity showed. There's reasons why he is P3 in the championship standings. Conversely, Oliver is consistently in the bottom half of the race speed charts and is shown to struggle with tracks. He doesn't click with right away. Reminds me a bit of Red Bull in F1 and the dynamic between young Mr. Max Verstappen, and young Mr. Albon. 
had some similar thoughts of late Thomas, not on the losing Pato to F1, but more on that exact dynamic of, of Verstappen and Albon. Of course, we know that Oliver is in his rookie year. Uh, Pato, we also know is in his rookie ish year. Uh, he's done what? 17 total. I think IndyCar races. So, it's not like he has a ton of experience, but he does have a lot more experience than Oliver in cars. Oliver, I think, is actually older by a couple of years than Pato, but if you think about his progression, Pato has been racing cars a couple of years longer. Um, we look at Mr. Askew, crazy amount of time in karting, and a relatively late convert to cars on the road to Indy. So, yeah. Pato also, just this is something we need to, we really need to remind ourselves of. I wrote about this, I don't know, a year or two ago, whatever it was. When he came out of, what was it, Pro Mazda? And nothing really came together to go into Indy Lights. He went and did a season of IMSA in the prototype challenge class. And I think won basically every single race, I think won every race, but one, I think the season finale was the champion of the PC class and just destroyed people. And so if we think about what he did that year, some of you know this, so, but some of you don't, if we look at where Pato happens to be stage of career and experience in driving maturity wise even though he's a little bit younger than oliver he's <laughs> five six seven years ahead in terms of on track experience not all that lines up to actual year by year five to seven years ahead i realize that but i'm just saying if you think about the 24 hours of daytona driving around in that you know, significantly quick prototype wasn't a, you know, DPI like we have today, but still pretty darn quick. Second fastest cars in the series. Uh, this is a kid with the 24 hours at Daytona, 12 hours of Sebring and this, right? By the end of the season, by the end of 2017, he had done so many hours of racing against Dozens and dozens of cars, some professional drivers in them, some amateurs in them, high speed, low speed, you name it, having to make a dozen crazy decisions per lap, how to pass, where to pass, when, when to lay back, when to go hyper aggressive, just left, right, break, stop. This was so drastically helpful for his education that when he came out of IMSA in 2017 as the prototype challenge champion when he rocked up in Indy Lights. I mean, come on. Wasn't even funny. Granted, Colton Herta pushed him like mad all year long. Colton hurt his finger, what I think at Toronto, sent him back a little bit. You know, Pato was was certainly getting the business from Colton. But the amount of mileage that Pato has amassed in a variety of machinery too. We know about his F1 test. We know about the F2 stuff. We know about super formula, yada, yada, yada. This is a kid with 
stupid talent to begin with. Then, Thomas, on top of that, we have piled massive diversity in the vehicles he has driven at such a crazy young age. Let me click over here. I'm forgetting his exact age. Um, Let me find it right here. 21. (laughs) He turned 21 in May. I mean, come on, y'all. And Oliver's, what, 23-ish, I think, something like that. It'd be hilarious if he was like 45. Um, 23. He'll turn 24 this December. The amount of prep that Pato had coming into IndyCar was just nonsensical. And so battle-hardened is really how I would describe him at, what, 18 making his IndyCar debut or whatever it was with Harding Steinbrenner. Uh, Then last year, as a 19-year-old or 20-year-old or whatever the heck he was, uh, bouncing around a little bit. But this is just a kid who, given stability and consistency, we have seen that stupid talent, that crazy diversity, and those insane amount of hours of racing experience he's amassed at such a young age all the stuff is just pouring right back out, man. And so he, as you mentioned on the radio, sounds unfazed. He drives like he is unfazed. Uh, I mean, he and I communicate regularly after the races and whatnot. Um, and, you know, he, he hasn't changed. He's still that cheeky kid who loves what he's doing and a great sense of humor and all those things but he's just a freaking young assassin in training. So the the truly mind-boggling part, Thomas, is what does Pato look like in 2022? (laughs) Right? 2021? I mean, he should be vying for a championship. I know he's third right now. It'd be a stretch to think he's going to knock Joseph or Dixon off here before the end of the year. But this kid before he's 25 years old, should be an IndyCar champion or there, thereabouts. Um, close here, coming back to your notes, and our man Oliver asks you, he's got the same amount of ridiculous talent. I don't believe Pato has any more talent than Oliver. I just know that Oliver, uh, he's got a lot of miles to put in to learn. Uh, Pato's been through so much more. Uh, he's made mistakes, learned from them. It's that old adage that I use quite frequently of the kid coming through you know, NCAA basketball or football and coming out a little bit early, and they show up in the pro leagues, NBA, NFL, whatever. They still got a fair amount to learn. Oliver obviously didn't come out early. He shot straight through the road to Indy champion, champion, and all that, and, you know, But I'm just saying, age-wise, he just doesn't have as much time as you would hope, experience-wise, coming into IndyCar. And so as a result, he is a full boom-or-bust rookie. And it's either crazy high, whoa, look at that, oh my gosh, or, well, yeah, all right, (laughs) in the wall, or hit somebody, or knock the nose off the thing, or whatever. And that's not taking a shot at him, that's just what happens at least half the time with rookies. You see that they show up, 
and they got a lot to learn and they're having to learn on a very public stage. And so they make those mistakes. They give you mixed signals and you aren't exactly sure what to make of it. Pato, I'm telling you what, do not discount that year in IMSA and all those miles where he got to not just destroy everybody with ease, but also the amount of mistakes he made and all the things that he did wrong in a two-hour, three-hour stint, whatever it was, that no one probably saw or no one remembers by now. But the decision to go to the left when he wanted to pass the guy instead of what he should have done was go right, and he lost three seconds that lap or when he locked the brakes and just... He learned so much that year that when he came back to open wheel, uh, he's a different guy. So Oliver just having to learn on the job. Uh, Jonas Magnuson. Hey, Jonas. Says, how can Ericsson's pit crew make so many mistakes, have so many issues compared to the other Ganassi crews? If Ericsson had switched his pit stops with Dixon in race one, he probably would have won. And the wing coming loose in race two, how odd is that? Even worse... The pit crew didn't seem to know how to change it, given the fact that it took 10 full laps to get him out again. Eh, they certainly knew how. What they were trying to diagnose there, Jonas, is is this a problem that is solvable, or is this a foundational issue that is going to stop us from running? So as I observed it, they were taking the time to try and figure out whether the mounting studs that the rear wing and attenuator lock into, is there an issue there broken off the back of the gearbox? If so, uh, is the actual end plate on the gearbox, is that broken? Is something actually falling apart there so the stud is pulling out altogether? These are the things you have to figure out. Unbolting it and bolting it back on, I mean, I'll just be honest here. Uh, we're maybe getting a little precious thing. The pit crew didn't seem to know how to change it. That thing goes on and off the car 10 times a day. They know how to change it. What they're trying to do is diagnose what the real problem was. The fact that it was loose, that's the obvious part. Why is it loose? And if we replace it, does it need replacing? Is it the mounting fixture itself? Is it the gearbox, the cap at the back of the gearbox that is maybe, who knows? Those are the things you don't fart around with. Those are the things that you take time to figure out. Other just obvious thing to mention, if you're coming in and you have this problem, you've got a real problem. This isn't a flat tire where you come in, boom, put a fresh one on, off you go. This is something serious. As a result, it's going to ruin your race. And you could get them back out in three laps. Three laps, 30 laps. At that point, it doesn't really matter. Another little note, the laps go by so quickly there that 10 laps, not a lot of time. As for Pit stop problems, yeah. I can tell you that this crew coming back from IMSA, highly talented, truly highly talented pit crew. Uh, we need to also acknowledge that 
they're getting fully up to speed as well in covid i hate to say it again uh it's taken a while for crews to really get up to speed that's from the best teams to the worst teams because for quite some time everyone's having to work in shifts at the shop so doing pit stop practice uh really was not possible for most teams because of state regulations and limited numbers of people that could be on the ground in the shop doing things so would not have your full pit crew staff there to do pit stop practice so as many teams many crew chiefs told me the most practice we get is during the race weekends so guys coming back to open wheel after being gone for four years uh, i'm maybe not totally shocked that they might have a little bit of a longer curve to get up to speed than say the ones in the nine car uh or the 10 car who've been doing it non-stop um at least fresher fresher experience uh let's go to michael hart marshall with the new car chassis likely a couple years away if you were to put, if you were put in charge of the task force to design the new car what would your priorities be weight reduction air efficiency drivability etc well the weight reduction would be pretty big um the vehicle dynamics I mean, they have only improved year after year after year for the most part. Of course, we bolt on this 58-pound fishbowl on top of the cockpit and kind of throws a lot of things out the door in that regard. Yeah, uh, I'll tell you what, Michael. I know it's a little bit looking back, but I would have a pretty straightforward design task force approach philosophy, and it would be, Let's go get the 2007 Panos DPO1 Champ Car, which, if you speak with Will Power, Sebastian Bourdais, Graham Rahal, all the folks who are currently, Simon Pagano, currently racing in IndyCar, who raced in Champ Car and in that chassis, they'll all tell you it's their favorite. It's the best, the best balance, best power to weight, just everything about it was quadruple awesome. And it looked like a million bucks. I would not say, let's just go copy that car. But I would say, let's go get one. Dale Coyne has one. There are many teams that still have them. Let's go get that car and look at it, study it, understand every aspect of it. The wheelbase, the weight distribution, just all so many things. And then let's bring in some of our conceptual designer types and say, okay, it's going to need an arrow screen. How do we take the best parts of the car that the finer IndyCar drivers we have who happen to have DPO1 experience tell us today is the best I've ever had? Let's be smart. It looked amazing. It performed incredibly and it made the drivers happier than anything they've ever driven. Well, that sounds like a pretty good starting place to me, Michael. Now, I'm not talking about copying it visually, but I can say that it wouldn't be a bad idea to say, hey, how much of this might we borrow while modernizing it, while adding some futuristic flair, integrating the aero screen properly? What can we do? What can we do? But boy, this is a really beautiful conceptual starting place or maybe it's 
the foundation. We're we're going to tether ourselves to trying to do something like the DPO one, just a 2022, 23 version of it. Last thing I'd mention here. So with what IndyCar wants to do with hybridization, that's going to add more weight for sure. That's going to add weight at the back of the car. Uh, not the middle of the car, kind of the last 30-ish, 33% of the car at the back. Uh, the mechanical part of the Kerr system that's going to sit in the bell housing. That is the structure that carries the transmission. And the bell housing is what bolts to the back of the engine. If we look at the back of the engine itself, you have the clutch plates, the clutch system itself, and you have the drive shaft that extends from the gearbox to the motor to the clutch uh, system there. Well, we have the actual KERS, the motor generator unit. It sits right there in the bell housing, and that's weight. That's metal. That's going to be added weight that we do not currently have and not a totally insignificant amount of weight. Then we have a battery that we need to put somewhere. And so there has to be some strategery here, Michael, in, okay, current car is pretty porky. What can we do to bring the weight down overall? But then we also need to really think about weight distribution. That's the number one thing that was gotten wrong with the Delarity W12 when it was introduced. And it's been thrown off a bit again now with the aero screen uh, weight distribution, which is something that, again, that Panos DPO one was credited with having almost perfect weight distribution, aero balance as well. These just have to be the things that are, are treated like most critical aspects. Otherwise, we're going to get a car that might look great, but dynamically is just going to be a pig. Uh, Scott McLaughlin question from Ian Keyworth. What's happened with Scotty? His debut for Penske. Assume this is all due to COVID. Um, and is anything on the horizon for 21? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I should check in on this. I know that Scott has said he does not expect to do anything this year with COVID as the uh, caveat with schedules thrown all around between his Aussie supercars, title defense, and IndyCar, again, just calendars are no longer what they were, jiving and whatnot. Yeah, uh, I mean, Simon's struggling right now. We, we can say that and know that for sure, but he's also a guy that tends not to struggle for very long. So, yeah, I mean, all it's going to take is a couple of good races for Simon, and no one's going to, re- I think, really remember uh, the bad times that he's had this year. For Scotty, I don't genuinely no um i can tell you that as trying as it's been for roger penske this year having bought the series and the track all the financial implications just so many things going on this sounded like such a fun awesome kind of sort of straightforward thing and i know tim pence tim penske good lord Tim Sindrick is in charge of things while Roger is focusing elsewhere. But I just wonder if the complications of COVID, but also running a series, funding a series, running a track, funding a track, 
upgrading a track, leader circles. Uh, there's been something like a 30, 40-ish percent cut in the leader circle this year. Uh, 30-ish, 30 to 35 maybe. Oh, I mean, it's so many things have changed, Ian, to where I fear the window for Scotty to come over and do IndyCar. Wonder if that's closed for the immediate future. Wonder if that might be a little bit more of a 22 thing, if it remains a thing. I hope it does. But yeah, uh, I'd be surprised if something happened for next year, but hope springs eternal, man. Uh, our pal Jeremiah Morell, I have tickets to Mid-Ohio. Rumor is there's a race meant to happen there in just over a week. Are my tickets going to work? What day should I be planning on showing up to the track with my camper? Should I be asking for time off work? Jay Fry says it's 80 to 90% that it's going to happen. When does the track tell fans they might want to plan on coming? Yeah, I'm sorry, brother. Um, I do know there's... There's a situation here where fear isn't the thing, but the governor is the one who holds all the power, who holds all the everything. And I, I know on, you know, I've heard that the communication strategy has been one of, let's just, I realize we might not make a lot of friends among the fans right now who want to hear updates every day and so on and so forth. But really, our fate is in the hands of the governor. So let's not do anything to piss him off. Uh, Let's not get mouthy about whatever. Hey, yeah, we think so. We might. We could. Here's if the governor were to let us have fans, this is when we'd want you to show up. Let's not put any. Let's just not give him any distractions. So we're going to stay quiet and we're doing that in the belief. I agree with this provided it's accurate. The only way we get to do this is if he says yes to our proposal to have 10 to 12,000 fans. And are we going to hurt ourselves or harm ourselves if we're talking a lot about this and giving updates saying the governor hasn't done anything. The governor hasn't done anything again. Um, so I get it totally, really get it for all of you who are wanting to know, wanting to go the series and the promoters are beholden to one man and his decision. And so it's that thing where you kind of want mom or dad to lend you the car for Saturday night or whatever else. And you just do your best to say nothing to piss them off and stay out of the way and stay in their good graces, hoping that they'll let you have the thing that you want. So I get it. I know it doesn't make everyone super happy, but I get it. Uh, You know, we're actually not too far from done. Um, Maybe, kind of, sort of. We'll see. Um, Where do we want to go next? Maybe we go to... We're going to go to Baba Ganoush, 77. Hello, Marshall. Hello, Baba Ganoush, 77. IndyCar has quite a tumultuous, has had quite a tumultuous, tumult, unpolished turd. I'm just going with it. 
Hello, Marshall! Exclamation point. IndyCar has had quite a tumultuous season with race cancellations, reschedulings, and a totally historic Indianapolis 500. My question is this. Do you think IndyCar is still on an upward swing of both viewership and global motorsports interest despite the rather hectic year? Oh, Baba. Oh, Baba. So this is one of those think and feel type things. And I think most of you know, I'm very much of a glass half full guy. That's not a forced thing. It's not a manufactured thing. It's a, that's just me. I tend to wake up feeling lots of interest and and life inside me and motivation and can't wait for the day and all the cool things are going to happen. I also get pretty bummed out, Baba Ganoush 77, when I look at Indy 500 viewership and go, oh boy, yeah, if we didn't have the live coverage in the greater Indianapolis area, uh, if that wasn't allowed, I would really be fearful to think what the rating number would have been um, because Indy watching it live from home was a massive part of of the demographic that made the Nielsen rating what it was. Um, Of course, I'm optimistic about IndyCar's future and there being an upward swing. I see from the kind of narrow slice of the metrics that are shared internally at Racer, and they suggest that We've got lots of fans who are really interested in IndyCar. That demographic is getting younger. There are more women, like not token increase of women, but like a really a real number of women. And these things just make me so happy to say, finally, it's not just the old fart league. And again, I mean, I'll, I'll be 50 later this year. So, you know, lump me into that crowd, but Yes, I can see the the readership numbers and they tell us real, real things that while there's still that awesome base of older white males as the core audience, that hasn't been lost, but we're getting younger and we're getting less man-ish, which is pretty amazing. And those things make me really happy. Where things diverge just a little bit is, I don't know how to say this without it sounding egotistical. It's not meant. It's just like looking at reality. IndyCar fans go to racer first more than anywhere else. We know that because the real honest metrics tell us so. And that's great. But I can't say that that's a totally accurate representation of IndyCar. So that's where I'm a little bit split on this. It's amazing to see the audience growth and increasing youthification and womanification. Fantastic. Based on what I see in terms of who's reading, who's turning up each day. Then I look at the audience figures for the doubleheader at Worldwide Technology Raceway, and I go, oh, okay. You know, it's okay. It's 
nothing great. It's not that much more than it was last year around this time when we were at Portland. Um, so I don't know what to expect. I don't know if this is the slow decline of IndyCar being expressed in not super awesome television ratings, which is the one kind of long-standing form of measurement we use to gauge its popularity from coast to coast. Yeah, you know, there's not a lot there that suggests it's taking off. And even if this year as a whole ends up being an increase, what are we going to be talking about? 2%, 1%, 3%? You know, uh, it's a lot of years that we would need to go through for that to become a meaningful increase in audience size. And so I think of it in health terms. If you're getting 1% to 2% healthier per year, that's great. Where did you start? If you're starting at 36% health and you can't wait to get back to 100% and you're improving at 2% a year, uh, that's a long time to wait and hope you get back to health. You also might start to ask, if the increase in health, is that slow and incremental? Are we going to lose the patient before it gets back to full health? Just age-wise? Like, hey, <laughs> your time on the planet's up. You've gotten really old and you're still not fully healthy. So those are the things. We seem to be at a time where, boy, if IndyCar could do something to get people's attention to know that it exists, that it's good and entertaining and has some positive stuff going on in terms of youth and this and that and right. Oh boy, I'd sleep easier. I'll tell you that. Um, I still wake up sometimes after being glass half full and happy and all that, but still wake up sometimes wondering and worrying whether you know, this series that I love and have dedicated so much of my life to is uh is going to be more than what it is is it just going to stay as a little niche thing like the Kentucky Derby where folks know hey the Kentucky Derby that horse race thing happens once a year oh well cool they're still doing horse racing i kind of forgot that existed and oh yeah they do that big horse race and then it kind of goes away again until next year right most people still don't know. <laughs> oh, you don't just do the Indy 500? You do, what, well, what else do you do? What do you do for the rest of the year? Like That's the most commonly asked question. Just forever. Um, yeah, so... It's a little bit of... A uh, little bit of... Airing of, of random thoughts here, Bob Ganoush 77. But I do believe that there's positivity... I do believe that there's a lot to work from. We have yet another change in communications leadership coming up with my pal Dave First. I don't genuinely know what is or isn't going on on the marketing front, right? New plans, big plans, different plans. I don't know. 
I don't know if marketing, if I don't know if there's a magic marketing plan that's going to make people love IndyCar. I just, I don't know. I do know that it feels like if we just keep doing what we're doing, whether it's the TV broadcast, the marketing promotional efforts, the just rinse, wash, and repeat, I just don't know how far we get in a reasonable amount of time. Super final thing to throw in here on this topic brings in some recent topics we've discussed and I've written about. So I love the fact that at least according to racers metrics, more women are reading, more women are tuning in. That's seriously phenomenal. I'm just going to keep preaching the same thing. We know what IndyCar's core demographic is. It looks like me. I'm that guy. Old, you know, white guy, middle age or older. And there you go. White guy, middle age or older, IndyCar's demographic. There's nothing bad about it. And there's nothing negative in that statement at all. We do know that if we have to look at the age, though, there's a finite window lifespan wise. So you've got to make new fans to replenish those that their time on earth is concluding or concluded. I mean, it's the same in any sport that has an older demographic or anything that has an older demographic. Well, share the same thing. I'll keep sharing over and over again. What do you do? Do you just try and get more of the same demographic or do you say, well, if we already have one area captured, shouldn't we start looking at the areas that we don't and make a concerted effort to say, Hey, you might not even know we exist. Black people, brown people, yellow people, red people, whatever people, women, we're here. And maybe we can do things that would make this feel a little bit like home for you. Yeah. Crazy idea. I'm going to keep floating it and keep believing that that is something that IndyCar needs to properly, properly embrace if it wants to really grow because they're not going to grow going after more folks like me. They got all the ones they're going to get. <laughs> you got them. <laughs> you absolutely got them all. So that number isn't enough. So man, you got to look elsewhere for those who aren't turning up at your races. And yeah, I mean, that's kind of makes sense in any business, right? If I have a core audience that shows up to buy my product and I don't have enough people buying my product, well, then I need to ask myself, who else do I need to try and invite to inform them about my product and get them through the, through the door to buy some of it? Like, I'd say that's kind of basic. All right, that is actually the last of the questions that my good man Tim Falkowitz prepared for me. You don't get to see the beautiful little Word document that he sends me, but he puts a line beneath the ones where he thinks those are the the keepers. I'm going to do something here since we got done in about an hour-ish or so. I'm going to do a little bit of overtime here um, because I think I can knock out a bunch of these that didn't make it through um, before I need to go get some dinner going for my wife and it's 9.37 p.m. Myself as well, but for her primarily. Uh, So let me see what I can do here in the next 10 or 15 minutes 
before I got to go. Mike Romanecki says, does Firestone or the teams put the wheels on the tires? Uh, well, it's technically putting the tires on the wheels, Mike. Um, with COVID, this has been Firestone doing the mounting and balancing in and around, I believe, in Indianapolis. And these products going to the track fully mounted instead of doing this at the track. Uh, there could very well be some exceptions where things do get mounted at the track, I think on an as-needed basis, but they're trying to limit contact of people coming and going constantly, getting tires mounted throughout the weekend, so they set up this COVID special plan to do mounting prior to the event, and then things get trucked down to or up or wherever they might be going. Pre-COVID, though, there would be space set aside for Firestone, whether it was with a truck and transporter or in a garage, and teams just flurry back and forth to get them mounted at the events. Uh, let's see, Shyam Chirupala. I love this one. I think I responded on Twitter when you sent it in. What is it I'm seeing now on all the noses on the cars? Uh, there's a central camera opening and then two openings on both sides of the front nose yes hashtag front nose shyam thank you for for sending this in uh, i love front nose just as much as i love me personally because it's a redundancy uh it certainly gets filed into my department of redundancy department file um yes the nose cam not something that i've seen get used a ton this year but yes, in the middle of all the front noses, hashtag front nose, there is a little rectangular squarish aperture for the camera to be placed. The nostrils on both sides are for cooling of the driver's feet or legs, but those aren't very big. And yeah, I don't think they do like massive cooling. So yeah, you spot it all of the hashtag front nose. Daniel Mack, hi Marshall, what do you think of Ed Carpenter making the second full-time entry for Connor Daly next year? And Ed just doing Indy in the third car. He doesn't seem the force he once was on the ovals in recent years. He's had a crappy year. I know that he opened Texas with, what, a fifth or something like that. Opened the year strong, and then it all just went pear-shaped in the worst kind of way. I don't know what happened, and I haven't had haven't made the time to ask him. This is just bizarre. It really, truly bizarre. And the bizarre part is, if we think back to the last couple of years, where uh, when Jer Hildebrand was with the team and he was doing indie only, and I know that he went full time. What in twenty sixteen? I think whatever it was, but. In those couple of years where it was Ed and JR really as the force for the Indy 500, Ed might be faster than JR half the time, a little bit more than whatever it was. Certainly fast, not a question. JR was there, thereabouts, really close. Just my memory is serving me, hopefully. But it seemed like this was a real force. Rarely, though, did you see whomever's, whomever Ed's teammate or teammates would be uh, jumping way ahead of him. 
Ed was usually the one way out in front. Uh, what happened at Indy, man? Renus VK, holy crap, rookie, and just in a, on a different planet. Could it all be set up? I don't know. I mean, uh, I can't imagine that Renus is doing something so differently than Ed setup wise, where he's magically that much faster. I certainly don't think Ed has forgotten how to drive, how to be quick on ovals. I don't have a legitimate answer for this, and that's why I'm, I really hope to get one, provided Ed has one. Um, it just, it's an abnormality. Uh, yeah. When, when something like this doesn't make sense, that's why I just, I don't look at Ed as the reason. Maybe he'll say, who knows? Maybe I, who knows? But yeah, uh, something doesn't add up. Love the idea for Connor going full time. Um, I think, of course, he's splitting his season between two teams yet again and doing well for both, but I'm going to run him through the same Pato type thing, Daniel. He came in, had full time, full season with Coin, then it was full season with Foyt. That was a disaster. I think Connor with all the miles that he has logged the ability to do a full season with the same everybody the same thing build momentum I think there's real potential there so any argument for Connor being full-time next year I'm with you a thousand percent he and Renus's teammates full-time I think that would be pretty awesome Ed doing ovals in a third car. This is something we've talked about for a long time. He said, you know, no, I don't want to do that. Who knows? Maybe he'll want to. Yeah. Love the idea. Hope it happens. Uh, let's see. Cade Fulling, MP, knowing the cost and seemingly scarce availability of the aero screen. Will the screen be left on the winning car from this year's Indy 500 and put on display at the IMS Museum? Or will the winning team or series develop a cheaper replica for display purposes? I love this question, Cade. When I saw it come in, I was like, wow. No, not blowing smoke here. I really appreciate you guys. Uh, y'all send in some <laughs> pretty sharp stuff. I never would have thought of this ever, but it's brilliant. Yet again, I don't know. I would tell you that authenticity is the thing. There's no NASCAR deal where the winning Daytona 500 car goes straight into the museum there at the Speedway. And, you know, there's no kind of automatic anything if the car were to go on display. I would think that they would want it to be as period correct as possible. And so that does mean... In theory, the aero screen that was on it would be retained with it when this chassis is done, maybe possibly at the end of next year. I'd say that might then become the window of opportunity for it to be seen and shown there, but it is owned by the Ray Hall Edelman Lanigan team. It's theirs to do with. No one has any say about what it does, where, you know, uh, it doesn't go anywhere they don't want it to go and in any spec that they don't want. But, yeah, I would, would say provenance, the origins and authenticity of the vehicle, 
that is the important part. So a cheaper replica for display purposes would say that that would not fit modern sensibilities. Thomas Gross. It's almost like you sent in some questions this week, Thomas. And I appreciate them. Says, are we giving the aeroscreen too much credit? Seems like every race that Paul Tracy uh, is on loves to point out how it could have helped save an accident. Uh, and if something different had happened, how much worse it would have been without the aeroscreen. For example, when DJ Willie P had the tire bounce over his car a few months back, PT loves to talk about how the screen saved him. Thomas says, the tire never touched the car. Uh, have we seen a single instance this year where we can definitely say the screen helped? Maybe I'm just sick of hearing about a device that has hurt the racing product by creating more air disturbance. Well, yes, at Iowa, I wrote about that um, multiple times, uh, about how, yes, Colton's nose would have speared into the side of the cockpit, exposed cockpit, the trajectory uh, definitely looked like it would have headed towards Renus's helmet. And yes, so there is at least one instance where very bad things could have happened at that race as well. We know that debris from that crash with those two uh, flew back and was deflected by Marcus Erickson's aero screen, which sent that debris into a side pod and tore up the carbon fiber side pod. So pretty serious stuff and deflection. So we do know for sure that it has... Uh, it's done some pretty serious things in terms of protecting drivers. Totally agree with your point, though. And, you know, I don't know how much of this stuff registers with other people, but yeah, it is kind of sort of being mentioned in a overly ambitious manner. Hey, somebody ran over a th- thumbtack and it got thrown up and ah, the arrow screen saved another life there just seems to be a bit of a bizarre desire to overstate what it's doing and it doesn't need it that's the thing so i agree i spotted the same thing my ears were telling me the same thing like come on man we 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 don't have to blow smoke here we can just say that hey it's valuable and i would absolutely say it saved at least one life already but we don't need to sing its praises in every crash and make up that it's doing things to protect drivers in some crashes where uh there's hasn't been any evidence it was even touched uh curvy volvo i don't know if you have sent in questions before i feel like i would have remembered it since i'm a lifelong volvo person but if you have, I, I suck and I apologize. But if you haven't, Curvy Volvo, possibly the best screen name ever since those things don't really exist. Um, that being Curvy Volvos. Uh, so what is the most common path to IndyCar? Is there a certain trade most team members come from? How diverse is everyone's experience level in general? Well, this is a bit of a how long is a piece of string question. I, there's no answer. Uh, there's no general experience. It's highly specialized experience. So most common path, start with the first question here. Most common path to IndyCar driving, mechanicing, engineering, data-ing, truck driving, hospitality-ing, PRing. There's a lot of ways to answer this. 
Uh, so let's do this. Instead of giving you generalisms that don't help um, on that one, feel free to send it back in with some specifics added to it. Your second question, is there a certain trade most team members come from? Again, you have folks who do everything from drive trucks to turn wrenches putting the cars together to calling race strategy to engineering to two 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 so can't really answer that one as well because there's so many roles on a team uh and as for the diversity and experience level again so not a negative response here just uh give me some more specifics what do you really want to know give me one or two because i'm you know not going to spend half the show running through every single position and but hit me with some specifics and i'll do my best to answer them in a non-stupid way todd murray mp your thoughts a few episodes back about dario franchitti being one of the indie greats got me thinking about three-time indie winners particularly dario versus uncle bobby what are your thoughts if each of their careers were extended five years in their respective eras who would end up with a fourth win and why um and then you have a nice you close by saying as always thank you for creating all this awesome content thoughts and prayers for you and chabrell don't hit us with the thoughts and prayers that's the most disingenuous statement ever i know you don't mean that but thoughts and prayers is the thing you say to people when you aren't praying and probably aren't thinking um awesome question Dario is a machine and a machine in a way that I don't know Uncle Bobby was. So if you extend their career five years, I think Dario had five better years ahead than say Uncle Bobby would have uh, towards the end of his career. Also say that for talking opportunities and none of this is meant to be besmirching our beloved Uncle Bobby, but his reputation as being crazy selfish uh very very polarizing i don't know how many doors were left open for uncle bobby to try by the end of his career now still driving for great teams and team owners but just saying out loud i don't know if there was a whole lot of up left for him to go in terms of places and opportunities Dario, he was already thinking about that sports car switch. So I don't know if he would have gone five years, but he is someone who I firmly believe would have gotten another Indy 500 win, possibly another championship as well. Uh, Take away that horrific Houston crash in 2013. And yeah, I don't, I mean, he wasn't having a great, great year in 13, but I would never count the guy out from going and getting more Indy 500 wins or possibly vying for one more title to close his career. So I'd say Dario, just think he was a little bit fresher if we're talking about having to extend the two. And if we're talking opportunities, Chip wasn't looking to go anywhere else. Chip wasn't looking to change anything there. And if by chance there had been, uh, <laughs> you know who would have been calling you know that RP would have been calling. So, yeah, 
Uh, I think we'd have to look in Dario's direction. Hopefully that isn't received as blasphemy. Uh, what do we got here? Jordan Darwin, you got a bunch of questions about contract links and stuff, and I don't know. I'm looking into some of this stuff, by the way, so maybe I'll have some answers here in the future. Some guy named Thomas Gross, who I've never heard of, has another question. Uh, I know that IndyCar thinks a new chassis will be too expensive right now, but can they really afford to not change it up quickly? If you have too many more races like this last weekend at Gateway, there won't be fans left to watch the races. Um, I hear you. Changing a car isn't necessarily going to be the magic thing. So, yeah, just f- I'm reading this just to share. I hear you. Change isn't a bad thing, but just for the sake of it, I'd rather see IndyCar try and drill in and come up with a more compelling passing solution than go down a route of let's try a new car and hope that works. Uh, president of social media says, hello, hope all is well. What's the status of IndyCar's next engine and chassis regulation? Are they still considering introducing the new chassis in a rollout fashion over a few years? Um, something else that I need to catch up with here. So I hope to have a written answer in a story here fairly soon. Uh, let's see. Ooh, boy, where else we got? All right. We got some fun stuff here. Um, I think we got about three left to go. Yeah. Got about five or six minutes left on the clock here too. So I think we're going to get this done in under an hour and a half total. Um, Erica Rosa. Hey, Erica. Uh, she asks, um, California announced the latest version of reopening plans this week. Uh, the lowest infection rate, California would not allow any fans at sporting events. Uh, she says, looking forward to 2021. She asks, is any car looking into this? Would hate to have the Grand Prix Long Beach put on the schedule just to be canceled again, not to mention... Laguna Seca, I would think, Erica, that they have so many things they're trying to just get through right now to get this current season done that they are probably not looking at California and its reopening plans while we're just into September this year. Could be wrong as always, but yeah, I I don't think they are. What I would say if we're looking at the information flow these things, as I understand, tend to come into IndyCar from their promoters. Hey, uh, we just heard that this change, that change, or these are the current situations and plans in place that would or wouldn't allow us to do things. Those would be more items that got sent into the series by the promoters to keep IndyCar abreast. I just don't know if these would be things coming in right now since we're a really long ways away from Long Beach, much less WeatherTech Raceway, Laguna Seca. Uh, Windy Car. Hey, Windy Car. Appreciated your Q&A the other week on pro sports and fans in the age of COVID. Your feedback was fair and logical. Well, let's not start that nonsense. Um, It's more like a rock concert booking a venue than the NBA. TV and other media just doesn't pay the bill for the track. The money math uh, needs the fans. Um... I was struck how thin Gateway looked this weekend. I've attended since 2017, watched it steadily build the past few years. Fantastic event, but seeing like seven people in an entire section made me sad. 
is it really worth it in this environment? Says you can open, but you can't make people go. Of the many things, I just have not really had time this week to dive into Windy Car. It appeared that Saturday's race was crazy thin, whereas Sunday's looked decent. Not great, but decent. I don't recall what the number was, the maximum number that they allowed themselves uh, for fans, but it looked like Sunday's was stronger. (sighs) I hear you. I I definitely hear you. It all comes back to the whole making money, paying for it, how do you do it kind of thing. And I'll tell you this, if I was a fan and living in the greater St. Louis area, I don't think I would go just for the, like, hey, I, I don't know what everyone's habits are and i don't know if people are really trying to not spread and you know uh i can't guarantee that in every single thing i do just at home in our normal lives but i can tell you we really make a concerted effort to limit our exposure to volumes of people and you know we're really vigilant we have to be obviously but just saying out loud if i was there and was didn't get credentialed and could buy a ticket though and sit and watch. I probably wouldn't strictly because of COVID. So makes me wonder how many people have that same mindset. Hey, I love it. And it's my thing and it's my jam and it's all those things. But this year, yeah, uh, I'm going to watch it at home and hopefully I can go back next year and not have to worry about getting sick. Uh, I believe We are saying farewell to the episode with a long question here, but there's some great stuff included, so I'm going to see if I can get through most of it. This comes from Reddit, North Sound Arc. As a Takuma Sato fan, I was listening to his radio using the IndyCar app during the race. The team on the other end of the radio was manic about trying to get Zach Veach out of the way so Takuma could properly contest Herta. Somebody switched to scan Herta's, uh, Veach's radio and reported back that their spotters were congratulating him on holding Sato and Dixon back. I have since learned the blue flags are advisory and not compulsory. Before this, I was in the camp that the better driver should simply drive around the slower car. I thought after Saturday's race, all this talk about not being able to pass was kind of BS after watching Sato's pass on Pato and even VKs on Herta on the Sunday race. But after hearing from Taku's radio, I can't help but think these kids, these kinds of team orders, are a little unfair, or to quote Taku, not very sporting. Uh, Mentions, hip-hop reference, Dwick by Gangstar featuring Nice and Smooth. Feels appropriate here. One of the greatest hip-hop songs of all time. Um, My initial thought, it was that the tire degradation wasn't enough to make it a compelling part of the strategy. I saw a lot of calls for a change to the aero package and one guy saying bring back push to pass on the ovals. Should such team orders uh, should team orders such as this be against the rules? It's always going to be tricky, right? Team sport, individual sport. It's a team sport, but they're individuals in the car. Uh, I don't like this stuff at all. 
I just crazy thought here. I'd love to see a lap rule. I'd love to see something that says if a car on the lead lap is stuck behind a car that is not on the lead lap, the driver who is on the lead lap has, I don't know, five laps to pass that car. And if they're unable, then that slower car has to move over and let them by. And I know that that maybe isn't the most sporting thing in the world, but if someone's a lap down and they're in a situation where they have a teammate who's either trying to get away from the person they're holding up or trying to catch the person they're holding up. Yeah. I mean, in, in other sports, there are blocking fouls, you know, uh, NBA's in the middle of its playoffs right now. You take a charge, you run over somebody, you get in their way and block their path to the rim. You get penalized. You receive a foul and the person gets to shoot a couple of free throws. There's a legitimate penalty for intentionally, even unintentionally, blocking the person's fair chance at scoring, well, I tend to think of passing and scoring in a scoring mindset. So, you know, I don't know if it's three laps, five laps, I don't know what it is, but if you're unable to get by someone, and especially with what we've seen with the struggles in passing here, North Sound Arc, uh, I just think stuff like that sucks. It, it it's not strategy, it's happenstance. Oh, you happen to come up on someone who's aligned with the guy you're competing with and they now want to give their teammate some sort of advantage. Well, you're not in that fight, dude. <laughs> you're a lap down or two or whatever. What are you doing? You know, I, I get that you don't want to get passed by anybody. That's a racer's natural approach to life but um you're not in this fight so get out of the way like it, <laughs> this just doesn't make a lot of sense to me so i'm with you uh if passing were easier then maybe we wouldn't be having this conversation so much but the fact that it has been proven to be really hard this year on ovals especially the last couple we've been to um, I don't want the slowest guy in the field dictating the outcome of the race because they have a teammate that they might be able to help. I don't want incompetence to be the thing that dictates the outcome of a race. It should be excellence. And I'm not specific, specifically talking about Zach or anyone driver on the incompetence or excellence angle we've watched it all throughout the indy 500 we've seen it many many times this year where you go the fastest driver in the race the one leading or second or whatever it is can't get by the driver in 27th well there's a reason one is in 27th and the other one is in first and if because of aerodynamics or tires or whatever 
we can't get by normally, naturally, and this is affecting the outcome of the race, well, move 27th place whomever out of the way. Hey, you got, how's this? You've got X amount of laps to pull away from that car. So let's just put the onus on the driver trying not to get lapped. Cool. You've got five laps to show you are demonstrably faster to pull away from the leader or leaders coming up on you. And if you can't, we're going to tell you to move over because you're not in that fight. And yet, through some crafty work on your part, how you drive the corners, slowing down the guy behind you at an inopportune time and accelerating away and taking away lanes, moving to the inside, blah, blah, blah. So many things that can be done. Uh, I just don't want to see a lack of competence on the day be the thing that dictates the outcome of the race. Now, I'm not talking about it's the last lap and they're charging down the back straight and they come across a back marker and, oh, the leader caught him at the wrong time. Look, that's just natural flow. I'm talking about lap after lap after lap. Look, I realize you don't want to go a lap down to whomever it is, but... If you're slowing things down, we can see that. We can judge that, right? We can look at the lap times and go, whoa, the leader is running three, four, five miles an hour off the pace compared to what they were doing five or ten laps ago. Uh Aha. And the guy behind him is catching up who happens to be teammate with the car in front of him. Even if that angle doesn't exist, even if there's no teammate helping teammate, I just don't want to see the people who are not in the fight were unable to pull away and in the attempt to get a lap back sour things so i don't know if that's the right approach but i know that i've seen enough of it this year to get really really tired of it so maybe there's something there maybe it's just a stupid idea of mine at 10:07 p.m on a thursday night thank you north sound arc for the final question thank you for the gangstar reference gangstar one of my top five all time uh, I am Marshall Pruitt. This is your week in IndyCar Listener Q&A Part 2. And yeah, there's still a lot of questions we didn't get to from Part 1. Send those back in if you want me to get to them. Thank you again to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com and Bell Racing Helmets USA. Really look forward to speaking to you next week ahead of Mid-Ohio. <laughs>